Good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to be back in Atlanta, good to be back especially at Mount Vernon Baptist Church. And it's good to look out and see you all here on this Lord's Day to greet you in the name of the Lord. I feel like I'm already among friends. Uh, some of you I've had the honor of meeting before. Some of you are old enough to remember when I was here before. And I want you to know how much I think of your pastor. It is a, a great, great joy for me to come. I'm now at Southern as president for 22 years. And uh, to come and to see the fruit of that institution's reach and someone like your pastor and is just very, very gratifying. Give thanks to God for him and for you. I was editor of the Christian Index here, the uh, Georgia State Baptist Paper, from the years 1989 to 1993. I was elected president at Southern Seminary in that year, and I was then 33 years of age, which people thought was young. And uh, I went to my press conference, uh, as you may remember, some of you are old enough to remember, it was a tremendous controversy that brought about change in the SBC, and this was a part of it, and I was elected president, and they had to elect me president in Atlanta rather than in Louisville because of the uh, circumstances of the controversy at that time. And uh, I went to the press conference, I had to fly from Atlanta where I was elected at a meeting by the Board of Trustees in the Marriott Hotel at the Atlanta airport, I had to fly to Louisville to be presented, and there were lots of questions being asked by a very hostile press. And uh, I remember one of them more than any other because it was an irrational question. The reporter looked at me and he said, you're 33 years old, what do you intend to do about it? <laughs> and I, I wasn't sure exactly what to say in response, so I simply said, I'm going to to age. I, uh, that's my plan. And uh, I just come before you today, 22 years later, to say I have kept that pledge, and uh, I am here today a full 22 years older than when I left Georgia. It is an honor to be here to see that this church in this place is a thriving, witnessing, worshiping community of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that light, I would invite you to turn with me to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. One of my major life projects has been to study the parables of Jesus. As a teacher, as a student of Scripture, I've wanted to understand why Jesus characteristically used this very unique story form in order to make His point, in order to fulfill His teaching ministry. Mark tells us that Jesus almost never taught without using a parable. In these days when communication theorists are telling us that Human beings are narrative in the structure of our consciousness such that we remember stories when we don't remember anything else. There are all kinds of affirmations as to why Jesus spoke in, in parables, and sometimes not just in one parable, but in a series of parables. But in this particular passage, Jesus surprises even His disciples by speaking a parable. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. 
and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. It's a short parable. Actually, we're told that Jesus spoke many things to them in parables. This is the parable that the Holy Spirit intended us to have from the sequence of parables Jesus told on that day. This is the parable that Matthew relates to us in this Holy, inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired testimony of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus often did speak in a series of parables, such as most classically is found in Luke chapter 15, where there are three parables in a cycle of lostness and foundness the parable of a lost sheep, the parable of a lost coin, and the parable of a lost son. Actually, as you come to understand that parable, it's not the parable of one lost boy, but of two lost boys. But when you look at a series of parables like that, you understand that Jesus is making a point along a continuous line. But now here in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus speaks one of His shortest parables, and it's a an agricultural parable, and most of us are not involved in the day-to-day -day life of agriculture, but we're close enough to it we can at least understand the mechanics of what Jesus is talking about here. A sower went out to sow. That's how you gain a crop. That's how you sow a field. Some agent has to go out and spread the seed. In this case, the farmer is ready to sow. And as he sowed, this is called broadcast sowing. It simply was the taking of the seed and throwing it upon the ground. Some fell on various kinds of soil. The first, he says here, is the seed that fell along the path. The birds came and devoured them. That's not good. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. They had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. That's not good. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. That's not good. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Bad news, bad news, bad news, good news. He who has ears, let him hear. I grew up in an, a wonderful family. Mom and dad loved the Lord and loved each other and loved us, four kids. We were raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We were raised in the context of a wonderful church, very much like this one. We were, we were raised in the context of a massive extended family. My maternal grandmother was one of 11. My maternal grandfather was one of 13, leading my mother to tell me I could only marry outside the county. In this massive extended family, there were always people about, most of them were involved in agriculture. And, and I grew up in a southern culture in which dinner was at noon and supper was in the evening, which was warmed over what you had for dinner, which was the major meal of the day when everyone came in from farming 
at the middle of the day, which was getting near the end of the day in the farming world, having begun so early, for this massive meal. We always had an unseen guest at this meal, and his name was Paul Harvey. Having been worn out by work all during the hours of the morning until the midday, there wasn't a great deal of conversation at certain points during this meal. And Paul Harvey bring on the news, and the news back then was something you had to wait for and plan for. You couldn't podcast it. When it happened, it happened. If you missed it, you missed it. And Paul Harvey brought news to America with the rest of the story. And embedded in that was the farm report. And as a little boy, I knew that when the farm report came, a great hush had to fall upon the entire room. This was letting everyone at the table know just what the family's net worth was today. I never understood the farm report, especially the pork belly part, but I understood that this was a valuation that came in terms of the agricultural markets, and that's how it worked. I understood how agriculture worked. I got to see it growing up in a family, which on both sides was involved in farming. I, I saw the planting. I saw the tilling. I saw the preparation. I saw the toil. I was a part of this and saw the harvest. It's a cycle that is repeated over and over again, and we are the poorer for the fact that increasing number of Americans know this only at the, remote, the most remote knowledge. Jesus spoke this parable when everyone alive would have understood the agricultural context of the parable because no one could get far enough from farming to have any alienation from what's going on here. Everyone would have seen this virtually every day. The very day that Jesus told this parable as He was speaking beside the sea, which is the Sea of Galilee, the lake, as He was in that very bucolic, very rural scene, it could very well be that there was a there was a sower sowing even then. If not, they all knew exactly what it was about. But this parable appears to be giving us a farm report, and, and we know this, Jesus. We, we know that seed that falls on the hard ground is not going to bear fruit. We, we know that seed that falls into shallow soil such that it has no depth of root, it cannot get down to the moisture, we know it's going to show immediate signs of life, and then it's going to fade away. We know that, Jesus. The seed that falls among the thorns, we know that the farmer who does not remove the weeds from his field will have a very, very small and inadequate harvest. And we certainly are thankful that there is good soil into which the seed falls and it bears fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. That's good news. Jesus, thank you for the farm report. What makes this even more strange in its context is that the crowd, Matthew tells us, that had gathered together to hear Jesus was massive. It was so big that Jesus had to get into a boat and go onto the water in order to have the distance that a teacher needs in order to be seen and to be heard, in order for the communication to take place. Jesus has this massive crowd, and we're talking, ladies and gentlemen, about Galilee. You don't get a massive crowd in Galilee, maybe once in a generation. Here it is. Now, it begins in verse 1 by saying that same day. Matthew consistently in his gospel wants us to understand chronologically why certain events are important. 
And as you might have time to look backwards in the Gospel of Matthew, especially to chapter 12, you'll discover that this day is a Sabbath day, and that this day is a day in which Jesus will perform miracles, and it will be a day in which He discloses Himself by the very performance of these miracles, not only as the one whom God has sent, but the very one whom God sent as Messiah. At one point in chapter 12, the crowd observing Jesus heal a man who was dumb and deaf. They will, they will begin to speculate, could this be David's son? Could this be the Messiah? Who else could do something like this but the Messiah? The, the one who was promised to us, the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, this is what we're looking for. Could he be the Messiah? Also in Matthew chapter 12 is the opposition coming from the Pharisees, which grows in intensity to the point that after he heals a man who was there in the synagogue with a withered hand, they plotted how they might destroy him, to destroy Jesus. Now, that draws a crowd. Jesus in a head-on confrontation with the Pharisees in the synagogue, that drew a crowd. Jesus healing a man who, who was demon-possessed and was known throughout his lifetime to have been so, that draws a crowd. The speculation, could this be the Messiah, that draws a crowd, even in Galilee, a massive crowd. The crowd so large, as Matthew 13 begins, Jesus had to get into the boat and go offshore in order to be seen and in order to be heard. And you might say that in terms of the evangelistic crusade organizing committee, this is exactly what they've been hoping for. And Jesus says, I want to talk to you about seeds and soil. He tells them a story. It's short. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You can all go home now. And the disciples are, to put it mildly, perplexed. You don't have to read it into the text. It's in the text. Look at the text as it continues. Verse 10, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? That's a great question. Why? Why, Jesus? This is not a dispassionate question about pedagogy. This is not a theoretical question about communication techniques. They're not coming to Jesus and saying, Oh, we were talking the other day about the parables. We love the parables. Barnabas, Nathaniel, Peter, we were all in a conversation about how much we love the parables, Jesus. What, why don't you just tell us why you speak in parables? That, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that this massive crowd was right here on the seashore listening to Jesus speak, and Jesus tells them a parable about sores and about soils and sends them home. And immediately, Matthew tells us, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Which being translated means, why did you do that? Why? Jesus, we've been hoping for a crowd like that. That's exactly, do you, this is Galilee. This is the boondocks. Crowds don't happen here, and one happened. Crowds gathered. The Lord was in it, Jesus. God was behind this. 
and, and this massive crowd that could only be explained by divine intervention, and you stood, Jesus, the crowd was so big, you had to get into a boat and go offshore. This, Jesus, they were speculating, could this be David's son? Could this be the Messiah? This was platform announcement time, Jesus. The disciples fully expected that what Jesus would do in this context is get into the boat and look at the, at the people on the shore and say, yes, the speculation is right. I am the Messiah. Follow me. And he didn't. Talked about the farm report and sent him home. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? That's a question according to the English language. You know the language well enough to know that's a question. The translators have rightly put a question mark at the end of it. But you also know that there are questions that aren't questions at all. Every husband in the world knows that there are questions that aren't questions. Get ready to go out the door and your wife turns to you and says, are you really going to wear that shirt and that tie? That may look like a question. To a newlywed husband, it may even seem like a question. That's not a question. That's a fashion verdict. That's a warning. Every child, especially as a teenager, comes to understand this kind of question, getting ready to do something, and dad says, you don't really think I'm going to let you date that boy, do you? No one expects an answer to that question. That isn't a question mark. That's a door slamming shut. It looks like a question. It's just not a question. This looks like a question. It's just not a question. They weren't really interested in, in, in coming to know why Jesus was speaking in parables. That's part of it. The larger issue is they want to understand why Jesus didn't declare himself to be the Messiah and call upon all those within his hearing to follow him and to march on Jerusalem. But Jesus dignifies their question. It's a great example here. They ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus dignifies their question by answering it. But in the answer of Jesus to that question, there is something we desperately need to hear. He answered them. Look at verse 11 and following. He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
Jesus says, okay, you asked me the question, I'm going to give you an answer, but the answer is going to be a whole lot more than you bargained for because my answer is not going to be about communication theory and pedagogy and teaching techniques. My answer is going to be about theology and the gospel and the human heart. He says, to you, to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. To the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is now addressed. To you, it has been given. To us, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. The verb here is really important, given. We, we didn't grasp it. We didn't gain it. We didn't, we didn't uncover it. We didn't decipher it. We, we, we didn't invent it. We, we didn't come up with it. It was given to us. The gospel is not a message that is ours. It is a message given to us, the message of the kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom. To you it has been given. This is a divine initiative. It points to the sovereignty of God. How is it that one hears and one does not? We would like to think it is simply a matter of the disposition of the human heart left to its own devices, but we are told repeatedly in Scripture and conclusively here, there is far more to this than meets the human eye nor the ear. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. It is a gift. It has been given to you. It has not been given to them. At least it has not been given to them yet. At this point in the earthly ministry of Jesus, recall the fact that they as the disciples are not even sure how to answer the question, but who do you say that I am? That comes three chapters later in Matthew chapter 16. And at this point, at this point, it becomes clear they have come to know that only the one promised of God could do these things. Only the Messiah could heal, could perform these miracles. Only, only the one whom God has sent, the Messiah, would be such that the winds and the waves would obey His voice. Only the Messiah could speak to Satan and to the demons and cast them out, and they uniformly obey him. But Jesus has never, ever even turned to his disciples and said, I want you to know who I am. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. No, he affirms that when the Holy Spirit leads Peter to say that just three chapters later. But that's later, not yet. But it's clear that in their hearts they're beginning to understand and in their minds they're beginning to connect the dots and they know that Jesus just has to be the Messiah. And in their understanding of the Messianic ministry, what they thought Jesus was going to do is to raise up an army to oppose Rome and to go to Jerusalem and to cleanse the temple, not just of the, of the sellers, but of the soldiers. It's clear that even after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples still haven't quite understood this, as you see in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples say unto Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, is it now that you will establish your kingdom? And Jesus says, well, not the way you think, not appointed to you to know the times or the hours, but you will be my witnesses in this age, even as at the end of this gospel he leaves the church with what we know as the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel and to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey 
whatsoever he has commanded. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. That is the main dividing line in humanity. It's not rich, poor, north, south, east, west. It's those who have heard and those who have not, those to whom it has been given and those to whom it has not been given. And then Jesus, in the next verse, verse 12, offers one of the most important laws of his kingdom. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The kingdom of Christ operates by laws just as every other kingdom, and the the laws of the kingdom of Christ are made very clear in the New Testament. And even as it is exactly true that we live by grace and not under the threat of the law, we, we are not free from the law. We are no longer under the judgment of the law that we find in Torah and the Old Testament, but we are under submission with the requirement of obedience to the law of Christ. And that law is rich. And the one who obeys it understands it and receives more. This is really about preaching. It's about hearing the Word preached. It's about the gospel, and it's about hearing the gospel shared. It's about, it's about the truth that comes from God and believing it and having believed it, then becoming an understander of what one has obeyed. Jesus gives us a law the law of his kingdom, and it's this, to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. That is a phenomenally important promise. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. That's why the secret of growth in the Christian faith is this, the one who hears the Word and believes it and obeys it and does what God commands and praises God for the gift of this revelation and receives it as the very Word of God, then there is more that is given. But the one who has not, the negative part of this law, the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. If that doesn't make sense to you, that's a problem. That, that's the point. If you don't get this, you're supposed to get it. But if you don't get this, Jesus tells us why we don't get it. It's because the positive promise is this, to the one who has, the one who receives, the one who hears, the one who obeys, the one who recognizes this as the very Word of God and receives it and obeys it and, and, and celebrates it, seeks to understand it and to apply it. To the one who has, more will be given. That's the way understanding works in the Christian life. There, there, there's no way that we can understand things until we begin to obey them. There, there, there's no way that we can have some kind of massive, systematic download of the Christian faith, and then and only then will we begin to follow Christ. We follow Christ as infants in the school of Christ. We just are given a little bit, and we, we take that little bit and we begin to grow, and through the one who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. We all start out as babes in Christ. But as the Apostle Paul and as Peter will also make clear in the New Testament, the purpose is not that we stay babes in Christ, but that we move up. As we are told, we're supposed to move from a diet of gospel milk to a, gospel, to a, to a diet of biblical meat. Some of you by now ought to be teachers. We're supposed to be growing. But 
it's not as if you can start with the full understanding and then move into obedience. You have to move into obedience. And then comes the understanding. The one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This sounds very strange to us. If the one doesn't have it, how can anything be taken away? This is very, very important. This is an Asian form, an oriental, the old word for it, form of reasoning. And it makes perfect sense. The Jewish mind in the first century would have understood it there immediately. You can have something but not have it because it's, it's so thin, it's so ephemeral, it's taken away. And there are people whose knowledge of Christ, whose knowledge of God, whose knowledge of the gospel is enough, they think they even know something about it. But they don't receive it. They don't obey it. They don't build their life upon it. And it disappears. To one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. In the earlier hour, we were talking about the Bible Belt and cultural Christianity and its disappearance. And you say, how can something that looks so solid disappear? How, how, can, how can it be that you can have these massive percentages of Americans who say they believe in God and they go to church and they fill these massive sanctuaries and they go to all these auditoriums and they build church gyms and they build church apartment complexes and they build all these things and, and they fill the suburbs with all these churches and then all of a sudden they're gone. Jesus explains it all right here. The one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. This, he says in verse 13, is why I speak to them in parables. You ask the question, okay, you're going to get the answer. Be careful what question you ask Jesus, because when he answers it, it's usually not what you expect. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Can you imagine this? You probably figured this out, but Monday's tough on preachers. For that matter, Sunday afternoon can be tough on preachers. Because you preach your heart out, and you're not sure what happened. I mean, sometimes you get a little evidence, and you can think, I think I know something that happened there. Sometimes a conversation or something happens in the room or sometimes something after the service, and you think, I, I, I think I know what happened there. But this is, this is a tough calling because you often don't know. Here's the tough thing for preachers. You come in here preaching, and every Sunday you leave looking pretty much like the Sunday before. The, the, the growth that happens in the Christian life, the transformation in the Christian life, it doesn't come with a snap of a finger. It, it comes over time as the Word does its work, as the Holy Spirit applies the gospel of Christ and the, and the Word of God to our lives. And it's, it's slow going. You, Christians are not instantaneous. This is not freeze-dried. This is farming. This is planting a seed and Sitting back to watch what happens. You know this, you're raising children. This is, this is long stuff. And some days you're not sure if you're going forward or backwards. Well, you just keep going. You planted the seed, and you now you, till, you tend the ground, you till the soil, you battle the weeds, and you look for the harvest. This is why I speak to them in parables, because... They see, but they don't see. Isn't that a haunting word? 
They see, but they don't see. And, and they hear, but they don't hear. That's a real danger. And, and, and it's one that we need to know about. It's possible to see and not see anything. It's possible to hear and not hear anything. And again, if you're parents, you understand this. My mother turned to me in exasperation one day, and she said, you hear everything you want to hear. I knew she wasn't happy about that. I wasn't even conscious of the fact that I was hearing what I wanted to hear and not hearing what I didn't want to hear. That's just the way it is with the heart. And, and that's the problem, isn't it? We think of the organ of hearing as the ear, but it's not really. It's the heart. We think of the organ of sight as the, as the eye, but it's not really the eye. There are people with perfectly good eyes who can't see anything, and there are people whose eyes don't work at all who see everything when it comes to the things of Christ. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Oh, and by the way, I thought you guys went to Sunday school. Look at verse 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is filled. It's fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus said, okay, you asked me why I speak them in parables, and I, I'm dignifying your question by making clear why I speak to them in parables. I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear. Oh, and by the way, don't you remember vacation Bible school? Don't you remember Sunday school? Don't you remember synagogue? Don't you remember when the prophet Isaiah scroll is read? You were told that even as the prophet Isaiah answered his call, he was told that the people to whom he would speak wouldn't understand, wouldn't see, wouldn't perceive. Why? Because they'll hear, but they won't hear. They'll see, but they won't see. But the answer in verse 15 gets back to the fact that the organ of hearing and the organ of seeing, we're not talking about eyes and ears here, we're talking about hearts, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, well, they've closed them, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Jesus said, you see, the message of salvation is there. The message of salvation is in everything I say and everything I do and, most importantly, in everything I am. Why are you following me? You're following me because I said, come follow me, and you follow me, and you probably couldn't even give a good rational answer for why, but you knew to follow me. I kind of understand what's going on here because I, I incline towards the rational. I, I want to believe that everything I believe is on the basis of evidence and facts and rational argumentation, and I don't want to believe anything, and I certainly don't want to publicly articulate anything until I know that I can connect all the dots and make the argument. And, and there's a sense in which I would like to believe that that's how I came to Christ. And certainly it's true that there are truths that you have to know in order to respond to the gospel, in order to come to Christ. In fact, the New Testament makes clear, in order to believe, you have to know 
that he is the one sent from God. We have to know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. We have to know about his death, burial, and resurrection. It comes down to what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. You have to know. You have to hear the summons. You have to be told the story of why God sent Jesus and what He did and why He died on the cross and that He rose from the grave and the call to faith and repentance that has to come. My youth pastor, when I was about 14, said to me, you need to go to seminary because you're wearing me out. I didn't even know what a seminary was, but I did have the perception I was wearing him out. He was very kind and very gracious. He was the way Southern Baptists used to have youth pastors. They graduated from college, could play a guitar, safely married, you're a youth pastor. Thankfully, he had a wonderful heart. He loved us. He loved the Lord, poured much great gospel and biblical truth into us, but he didn't know much. I was wearing him out. I wanted the whole thing laid out. But you know, if you want the whole thing laid out, in order to understand it all before you become a Christian, you'll never become a Christian because what you have established is, is your own rational understanding as the requirement. That's pretty much where the Pharisees and the scribes were. They said, listen, Jesus, if you just give us enough proof, we'll believe. If you just, if you just meet our standard of, of, of proof, we'll, we'll believe. And, of course, they wouldn't, and that's the point Jesus is making here. If you're going to establish your own threshold, then it's never going to come because you will deny all the evidence put before you. This is the point of one of the most important of Jesus' parables. Often overlooked, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. There's actually a debate as to whether it's a historical narrative in parabolic form or a parable in historical form. It doesn't matter. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of Lazarus, you'll remember him, who, uh, who died outside the rich man's door, the rich man who feasted sumptuously every day. And, and after death, for both of them die, one, that is Lazarus, is comforted in Abraham's bosom, and the other, the rich man, is in torment in hell. And the rich man, looking at Lazarus, comforted in Abraham's bosom, says to Father Abraham, send Lazarus in order he can dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in this fire. And Abraham says, can't do that. Great chasm's been fixed between where we are and where you are. No one can come from here to there, nor from there to here. And then he says, well, then I beg you, Father Abraham, Send Lazarus to my brothers, let him warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, hey, they got the Bible. He says they have Moses and the prophets. That's the Jewish way of saying they have the Bible. Have the Bible, let them listen to the Bible. And the rich man says, no, they have the Bible, but if you send a man from the dead who's alive now, you send a resurrected man, and they'll believe. And Abraham says, and of course Jesus is the one saying the statement, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if one should rise from the dead. And who spoke those words? The one who rose from the dead. And what happened when he rose from the dead? The people who said, he's not the Christ, said, people don't rise from the dead. And so we look at ourselves now, those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now we have biblical warrant for believing in our spiritual sensitivity. It's right here in the text. We were sensitive enough to believe. We had the spiritual perception to believe. We can now look at all those who do not believe and say, we have it over you 
for we believed and you do not. Except for one big thing. In verse 11, we are told to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. It's not an achievement. We're, we, we did not come to Christ because we're more spiritually sensitive. We didn't come to Christ because we're morally superior. We did not come to Christ because we are rationally more able. We came to Christ because it was given to us. It's all of grace. It's repeated in verse 16 and following, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Truly, truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do we understand how blessed we are to have been given the gift of seeing, of hearing? For there are so many prophets and righteous men who longed to see what we see and they didn't see it and to hear what we hear and didn't hear it. As the opening to the, to the book of Hebrews reminds us, in times past, in many and various ways, God revealed himself, but now he has spoken through the Son. We've heard. It's not because of who we are, it's because of who God is. It's not because of our superiority or self-selection. It's because of God's saving purpose and his sovereign work within our hearts. But we have heard, and we do know that our ears are blessed for they heard, and our eyes are blessed for they have seen. The laws of the kingdom revealed in Jesus' answer to the disciples' question are really important for us because it's just vitally, urgently important that we recognize what our business is because here's the big problem. We, we will tend to think that our business is the soil selection business. I mean, here's a parable. There it was, four soils, and three of them ended badly. That was wasted seed, wasn't it? I mean, preaching the gospel to people who had hardened hearts, that was a waste. Preaching the gospel to people who were just superficial responders, that's a waste. Preaching the gospel to people who, as it turns out, are going to be materialistic and worldly and are going to fall back into the world, that's a waste. What we need to do is to aim ourselves strategically towards preaching the gospel to the people who are going to hear and hearing believe and believing be blessed. So that's what we should do. It's a, and the answer to that would be pretty clear. What we need to do is bring in the marketers. Let's, let's bring in the marketers and let the marketers tell us how the message is getting out, where is it being received, and, and let's just lean into the receptive audience and just, just forget all the rest. Or we'll bring in the sociologists. They'll help us out. We'll bring, go to the university, bring in the Department of Sociology, and say, who are those people sociologically defined who are most likely to respond to the gospel and be people like us? And guess what? The sociologists are going to say those people look like you which is why so many of our churches look like they look. But the logic of the kingdom just blows that wildly open. And, and Jesus, in order to make the point, continues by doing what he normally doesn't do. And you just got to understand there's, a, there's, there's an edge into this you'll miss if you don't read the whole chapter as we just did. Jesus has this massive crowd. He tells a short form of the parable, short form. And he sends everybody home. And then the disciples say, why did you do that? And Jesus answers them. And then he says, you got to love this, beginning in verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. In other words, the crowd went home. You think they missed it. <clears throat> you missed it. 
You missed it by a mile. You missed it so far, you even asked me why I did it. Maybe now you understand it, or maybe now you can understand it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Jesus says, now maybe you're ready to hear the parable you should have heard the first time. You thought the crowd went home without understanding. You stood here right beside me and didn't understand it. This isn't about seed and soil. It's about gospel and hearts. The one who would preach the gospel in obedience to Christ has to recognize there are some who will just resist the gospel as if their hearts are so hardened they are as stone. And what do you do in response to that? What does Jesus say you do? You keep sowing the seed. Because let me tell you, you never know when the heart of stone will turn to the heart of flesh. Because in reality, the one who appears to be this hardened heart is, is perhaps even in the twinkling of an eye, the one who instantly grasps the hold of Christ. You can't predict what's going to happen. And if you're around the church for any length of time, you will come to know people who were the most hardened unbelievers who became believers in Christ. And they often can't explain why. As C.S. Lewis said, he went on a trip to the the zoo, an unbeliever, and went home a Christian. He didn't know why, but it happened because Christ claimed him. He preached the gospel. You see, the marketers would say, don't waste your time preaching to hardened hearts. Don't, don't waste your time preaching to a secularized culture. Don't, don't waste your time preaching to the intellectual elites. Don't waste your time. They're hardened hearts. They're asphalted hearts. Give it up. Move on. Jesus doesn't say move on. So the scene. Then there was that which was sown in the rocky ground, that very shallow, superficial. And we certainly see this. This is cultural Christianity. This is where people show immediate signs of life. It's popular to be a Christian. It's popular to be in the church. It, 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 you add social capital to yourself and to your family and to your position by being a member of the church. And yet when persecution or tribulation comes, and brothers and sisters, it's here and it's coming. Let's not exaggerate it when people are dying in Mosul for the sake of Christ, but let's recognize we are in a changed situation, and it's going to call forth a new degree of faithfulness among us. Now, there are going to be a lot of people who just aren't here anymore. They were here, they were on committees, and all of a sudden they're gone. And Jesus said, don't be surprised, I told you. It's going to happen. And I explained to you why. It's because there's no depth of soil. They're, they're, they're just not growing it, the, the, the good seed of the gospel and the preaching of the Word has never taken residence in their hearts. It's just superficial. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately they fall away. There's a third soil. As for that which was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the Word. And notice how specific he is about the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. And, and again, we see that. Who is more likely to respond to the gospel, the poor or the rich? It's always been this way. 
It's, it's always the poor rather than the rich because the rich can buy themselves into the deception that they don't need anything. It's amazing how creature comforts can make us spiritually numb. A warning to us all who in the biblical category would be counted as rich. But then there's the good soil. Thank God for that. And there's the increase of the kingdom. And unless the good soil congratulate itself on its goodness, Jesus has already said, given, not taken, given. It's given. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The last word comes from Jesus as he concluded the parable the first time. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are so thankful for this word, thankful for every word of the Scriptures. We're thankful for this portion for us today. Father, we pray that your church will be reminded over and over again of the law of your kingdom, that the one to whom much is given, much will be required, as we are told here, to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. And Father, may we as your church be ever more committed to preaching the word, to sharing the gospel. Save us from our attempt to select soils. Keep us, we pray, Father, at the task of sowing seed. And remind us always that it is you who give, it is you who will take away. Father, it's all of grace we know, and we claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has ears, let him hear. Amen.